Hello, you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Plumfield in Person. Hi, I'm Sarah Masaryk, and I'm here with Diane Pendergraft. And today we have Tanya Arnold of BiblioGuides and Jill Morgan of Purple House Press for another Landmark Books book club discussion. Today we're here to talk about medical core heroes, and we're so glad you're listening in. Tanya and Jill, this is a good one. <laughs> yeah, <definitely>. it is. <laughs> thank you for coming today. Thank you for, most importantly, thank you for bringing this book back into print. Jill, was this one a big unicorn? It was. It used to cost about $500. And um, when I was talking with the author's family, I asked them if they had a copy I could borrow. And thank goodness they gave me one. So I didn't have to buy it. (laughs) Now, when you spoke with the author's family, you got the rights, if you wanted them, the option to do combat nurses, medical corps heroes. And both of those now, thanks to you, are in print. Is that right? Yes. Uh-huh. And so the, I'm thinking about asking them for more books too, but we'll see how that goes. <laughs> so just to be clear, Wyatt Blassingame wrote a number of books for the Landmark books. He had the four. So he has the three that are World War II, right? Mm-hmm. The Combat Nurses, Medical Corps Heroes, and the Frogmen, and then the French Foreign Legion. He was actually a really prolific author, though. He wrote a lot of adult books and quite a few juvenile books, and then just a lot of short stories and so the one of the very first landmark books I ever bought was The Frogman. And my son, Michael, who doesn't really like a lot of history or literature, loved The Frogman. And then with Combat Nurses and Medical Corps Heroes, we, of course, had no access to those. So thanks to you, Jill, we now have those beautiful books in our lives. And those really resonated with my other two. Um, Michael's interested in them because they're, they are so technical and they're funny. Wyatt Blassingame is funny in places. <laughs> he he makes a big point in both books of communicating that in war, you still have to be people. And sometimes the only way you can cope with things is to just laugh and tell jokes. Yeah. And he shares a lot of stories like that, doesn't he? He really does. Th- one of the reasons I think that he's really the perfect author for some of these books is that he did serve in World War II. He was three years in the Navy during World War II with the air combat intelligence. So I think first he's got these experiences with World War II and he had connections. Mm -hmm. And then it seems like in the stories, in the books that he really wanted to get it right. So he interviewed a lot of people. He was going, this is the perfect example of it being firsthand knowledge right? directly to the sources isn't, oh, I heard this story or I read these stories. It was contemporary to him at the time. He does such a great job of honoring the story. So he tell mm-hmm. he sets the context, you know, sets the landscape, and then he puts the story in its place. And he knows what his listeners or his readers want. They want to know how it turns out. And so, so many times you hear about a medic doing something or a doctor doing something, they're awarded a purple heart, and then they don't get it because they die three days later. Or they they actually get home. Like the number of stories where the medics and doctors were reunited with amputees that they had helped um, or other other people that they had helped later on, years later. I thought that that was really compelling stuff, fascinating stuff. Yeah. And 
it was almost like coincidence. There was one story in medical core heroes where the doctor saved someone. I think it was an amputee, but he didn't know who it was. And then three years later, he's in New York and he's somewhere and they start talking and come to find out it was that very soldier. There were several stories like that in medical court heroes. Specifically, Mm -hmm. that was the one I was thinking of when I said amputee, that he was caught inside of, um, I think it was a tank, and he couldn't get out. The soldier was going to die. And the doctor was able to amputate the leg because the leg was ruined and damaged beyond repair anyway. And that would then free the soldier to be dragged out of the area where a bomb is about to go off. And then we get the happy ending that three years later, they are reunited. I think that this is probably a good place to just say that that sounds like a really rough story, you know, legs being ripped off and things like that. But this is a real story about war and people die. But as I was reading through it, I kept thinking, he ripping my heart out for Mm -hmm. these people, but it's not gory at all. No, right. How is he doing that? It's non-graphically graphic. Yeah, you get the full story, but you're not it's not just for the sake of blood and gore. It's for the sake of telling the truth. Yeah. Well, like the story with the the battleship. You talk about the gore where the ship was attacked. They were able to resolve the attack. The medical corps and the doctor said, "Okay, we need much more training and more physical training. So the doctors and the medical corps team did went through every single day. They were running through the ship. They were lifting weights. They were doing all the things they needed to do to be physically fit, to be able to do the things they needed to do to rescue the sailors if they were attacked. And they are attacked by a kamikaze airplane. And all of that training was needed. And for hours and hours and hours, they're just attending to the wounded, attending to the wounded. And they realized we need everybody on this ship to have basic first aid. We need support because we can take care of the big wounds, but we need them to take care of the small stuff. So after that, and so the ship now, it's been severely damaged because of the airplane attack. So they bring it back to port that's repaired. It's sent back out and the staff train all of the sailors on the ship to be able to render first aid. And so then what happens? The ship is attacked with a bomb and ripped open. And I think they said something like 429 were wounded, 260 were killed instantly. But every man on the ship knew how to apply first aid. And men who had never dealt with blood we're back at we're bandaging up huge wounds and triaging all day and it saved so many lives because of that how did he tell that story and make us care that way also not make it boring like i'm i'm gonna be honest of all the landmark books i wasn't super excited to read the world war ii okay so just the titles like the medical corps heroes the frogmen combat nurses i in my mind i was thinking uh, i don't know really i don't know that i want to read about maneuvers, military maneuvers, (laughs) or that I'm going to understand the technical terms, or, I mean, not that I don't think it's important, but I was just thinking as a nonfiction book, it might be dry. It might be boring. I, I, it just might be like where I'm just like pushing through it. I was just thinking, well, what will the writing be like for authors of that time period? I had read a couple other military books and there's a series by Colonel Red Reader. That's a American military history series. And I read a book Mm -hmm. about the Mexican war and it was fascinating. And he actually wrote a landmark. Ooh, Jill, we should look at that one. 
Um, (laughs) So it was so fascinating. And then I read a Stephen Meter book that was a historical fiction one about a boy in the Civil War. Again, a lot of military movements also Mm -hmm. done fascinating. So then I just wasn't sure, okay, well, what will, you know, what will Wyatt Blasting Game bring to the game? Mm -hmm. And I was just mesmerized. And I think everything that both you and Diane have shared about it's gory stuff, but not gory. Mm -hmm. It's exciting. It's, it brings you in, but for me, for the very first chapter, I cried in chapter one, like he starts you right at Pearl Harbor and he just draws you right into the story. And there's in that first chapter, he tells you about a doctor that was there training. Yeah. And then, okay. I cried you guys. Like, (laughs) I mean, he was made a, uh, Colonel. You're talking about the doctor who was there, who's a retired famous surgeon. He was a World War I veteran. He was there for a conference, a medical conference. Yes. yes. And they're being bombed. And he looks at one of, you know, that he's taking care of patient after patient after patient. And he looks at one of the uh one of the actual officers and says something like, Maybe I should re-enlist. And by the end of the day, he comes back, you're a colonel. Yeah. <laughs> Fastest Look. enlistment ever. So I'm crying through this first, this first chapter. And also like, you're talking about how he is, he's humorous. So just so the, maybe our listeners can hear this, this passage is really short. So this is the doctor, Dr. John Moorhead. And he says, I was at this point that the hospital commandant stopped by to speak to him. We are very glad to have you here, doctor. I was in the army during the first world war. Moorhead told him, maybe I ought to go back on active duty. He spoke a little wistfully. He was too old, he thought, for active duty. It was sometime in the afternoon when the commandant stopped by again. It's done, colonel. What's done? You are in the army, a colonel. Probably no man was ever taken into the army faster and with less red tape. Quite possibly, it could not have happened to anyone except a famous surgeon. Just how the commandant managed it, Dr. Moorhead never knew. And at this point, he had no time even to wonder. It's magnificently told, right? Like, it's funny. You're crying because they're they're so shocked by the attack on Pearl Harbor. And so I just feel like to start it at Pearl Harbor. Yeah. My dad's a vet. He comes over for dinner five nights a week. And so he came over and I said, oh, dad, I'm reading this book and I'm just, I'm fascinated by it. And, you know, he talks about like, he gets teary eyed. I mean, he wasn't, he was a baby when World War II happened, but he just, the way his older brothers and his dad would have talked about it. Like those were our boys. That's what he said to me. Those were our boys. Mm-hmm. So like, so I read a little bit to him and he was like, he's crying and I'm mm-hmm. crying, I'm reading out loud to him during dinner. And, and, it, and again, but it's not graphic. Like my dad doesn't no. want to hear graphic, right? Cause he is right. a vet, right. but just the power of the way the story was told. And I learned, I think the other thing that I thought was fascinating. I mean, how many of us have read world war II stories? Like a lot of us, mm-hmm. but this perspective is so unique because it's only really from the medical core perspective. So you're you're only seeing what's happening as to what that particular, those particular units are doing, which is interesting. So I also noticed that half of the book is the Pacific theater. Yes. Like at the 80, 80 page mark is, you know, zero to 80 switches. is the Pacific yeah. theater. And then it switches to the European theater. And then towards the end, you go back to the Pacific theater, but you have all of these battles, these major battles through world war II, but you're not seeing some of the things that maybe you know about like instead you're yeah. Like DNA is told in a completely different perspective. And that is yeah. fascinating to me. Yes. Yes. Well, and I thought it was interesting. So you've got D-Day and then the next chapter is like D-Day plus three. Cause you know, then that's when time changed. Everything was plus 
after D-Day, you started to calculate time based upon that. And I thought the contrast that in the Pacific, the Japanese were not a part of the Geneva Convention and they did not honor the accords of the Geneva Convention. And if you were wearing a red and white cross, you were a target. If they could take you out, you couldn't render aid. Versus when we get to the European theater, and it was unpredictable. Sometimes the Germans would honor, sometimes they would not. So they never knew. They never knew if they were walking in as a target. I don't know which one, which situation was worse. But you've got those couple of scenes when one of the doctors was rendering aid to a villager and the Germans walk in, they have their rifles trained on him. He ignores them, just continues doing what he needs to do, and they turn and walk away. And then a few pages later, you have the story of a German who drives his Jeep right into the American lines because he's got American soldiers and German soldiers, and he's a medic, and he was just trying to get the soldiers to a hospital. Didn't matter which one. His, it just it, it kept it exciting. And I don't mean that like, yippee, it's such an exciting novel. I just mean like you just never knew where the story was going to go and you were always going to feel it wherever it went. And I just have a question. Did you guys know that about the Geneva Convention and the Japanese? No, I had no idea. I I didn't either. And I, that's, I specifically shared that part with my dad because he knew it. Of course he knew it. Right. I didn't know that. I'm just speechless about it. Then when we get to it here in the end, they're going to talk about Desmond Doss. And I watched both the documentary and Hacksaw Ridge. But of course, in those two shows, they talk about that the Japanese did not, they were not at the Geneva Convention. I just didn't know that. I know that was completely lacking for my education. And I think I understand why I have known Japanese Americans and I know that Japanese Americans who are Americans suffered terribly at the hands of Americans because of the war. There was such discrimination against them because of what Japanese Japanese did during the war. And you can see both sides. You can see how Americans who had family members that served in the Pacific would feel so much anger. But you can also understand that these Japanese, they're Americans. They had nothing to do with it. And so Mm -hmm. I wonder if, Tanya, you and I came up at a time when our history books were being sanitized. I don't I don't know. I find it interesting that we're the same age and we never learned that. I never learned it either. And I'm a little bit older than you. (laughs) And one thing I read also about the Japanese is that 40 percent of their prisoners of war died in the prisoner of war camps. And in Europe, where they followed the convention and they treated their prisoners better, only 1% died. Yes. So I think that's just a really stark contrast. Have you ladies ever read A Town Like Alice by mm-hmm. Neville Shute? Yes. Yeah. Diane, you and I have talked about this one. We need mm-hmm. to do this one as a book club. Uh, yeah, I think so. It's This one is, especially as a, on the heels of all this World War II stuff we're doing. I think one of the other things though, is that I don't feel like in a typical education that there was much focus on the Pacific theater. Agreed. Right. So at least for my education, everything was focused on Europe. Yes. So it's, it's crazy actually, because we all know about Pearl Harbor and you study Pearl Harbor and And then then it goes to D-Day. Yeah. It's just Mm -hmm. it. Right. I mean, maybe you've heard Guadalcanal 
battle. And maybe you've heard a few of the other major battles, but I don't think it made sense in my mind where they were at or how they connected or mm-hmm. what the interplay was. I didn't, I don't know that I really understood the difficulty of the U S fighting on two separate fronts. Mm-hmm. Right. I think and some of it depends on how much John Wayne you watched when you were a kid. <laughs> oh dear. Not enough. S- Sands of Iwo Jima <laughs> and that kind of thing. Yeah. Like I only really knew about the Holocaust. I never really right. knew about the other parts of World War II until I read these books. I do think right. that's what overshadowed the study of the Pacific theater is just that the Holocaust was so horrendous. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know about it until after the war was over. Once it was discovered, it was kind of like jarring. What else matters? Yeah. Right. We don't know much more about how the the war ended in the Pacific is because everybody, the world was stunned. Yeah. Yeah. I I tear up at all this stuff. And that's one of the reasons why I really wasn't sure if I wanted to read this book or not. I didn't want to get too emotional about it. And then also like Tanya, I thought, well, maybe it's just military maneuvers and I didn't really think I'd be interested in that either, but it's really neither of those. It's more just these stories about people and how they made it through the war. It's all personal stories of the corpsmen, the doctors, the medics, and it makes it really compelling. It is compelling and a sense of hope. Did you feel that? A sense of hope? I never really, like I said, I never really knew a whole lot about World War II, except for the Holocaust before, but I understand why this was the greatest generation. And I'm going to (laughs) cry just thinking about it. But those people were selfless, completely selfless. The medics, I don't know how many stories I read about the medic who saw somebody who needed help and they dodged all these bullets and and they went out time and time again. They would earn a bronze or silver star for it, but that's not why they did it. They just did it because they wanted to save people from dying. And they just did it time and time again. These people were so incredibly selfless. They didn't have a lot to work with all the time. They didn't always have the medical treatment they needed to give to people, but they just did the best they could. They saved people. And I just uh, like looking through all these photographs, it just brought it home how rough they really had it and how well they handled it. There's just an amazing generation of people. And I think it's important too, to understand that All of the battles are well-known. We talk about those all the time. Battles could not have been won without the support teams. You Mm -hmm. have to have transportation. You have to have supply or nothing happens. When when the army gets too far in front of their supply, they starve and they run out of bullets. And so those people who you think, well, he was just a truck driver during the war. Oh, yeah? Just a truck driver? Wait till he doesn't show up. Mm-hmm. And in the medical the conditions I think, that he had to drive through, you know? right, right, yeah, and the right. kind of courage it took to keep going when he could see what he was driving into. Well, mm-hmm. and when he's targeted too. So whether yeah. it's the, the because they know take out the convoy, take out the medic, take out the yep. people who are going to provide the resources needed. That's how you, you know, I have bad words. I'm gonna not use them right now. <laughs> One of the photos in this book that I added. Um, it's a candid photo and you can tell it's it was taken in combat it's of a jeep rushing by there's the guy his 
the driver, his, the look on his face is so intent on where he's going. And in the back on like a little bunk bed, there are two stretchers with men uh, who need medical treatment. And then there's another medic behind there with them. And it's just, it was so compelling to me to see that picture because it was not posed. You could tell that the Jeep was going as fast as it could. And somehow the photographer got a picture of that, but it just illustrates what these medics lived through. Right. And it's just amazing what they did. Page 87, where it says private Wesley Tanner saw them and shouted a warning, but there was no time to carry the patient to a foxhole. Tanner and the other litter bearer simply placed the stretcher on the ground. Then private Tanner lay down covering the patient's body with his own. It, it's, so that's what you're going to do. He's going to save lives. He's going to lay on top of the patient. That's and how many times did that happen in there? Constantly. Time and time again. And one of the pictures you see um, an evacuation hospital, you see it was completely destroyed. It was just, it was mm-hmm. bombed. The Germans bombed it. Is this the, in Italy? So I, I haven't seen the original book. I would be curious to know, Jill, about what you did with the photographs. Page 89 has the destroyed hospital. It's the 56th evacuation hospital in Italy. Yeah, that story of Anzio was just unbelievable. The beachheaded Anzio. Oh, yeah, that's what I was reading about was the beachheaded Anzio. Unbelievable. Well, and again, so I think a lot of us have heard that story, but you're hearing it through the eyes of the medical corps. Mm -hmm. It's a completely different picture than you've ever seen or heard before. I well, cried and I loved it. And like the fact that the patients at Anzio asked to be patched up so they could go back to the front because the front was safer than the hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you guys remember there's, um, I, I feel like this might've been like Iodima or Okinawa, but there was a 19 year old, they were trying to land on the beach and people were going down and he was in the water and he kept going and getting people and bringing them back to a boat and then going and getting another one. And they kept seeing him over and over and over again. And then, and then the battle didn't. raged on and then they didn't know where he was. He'd gone missing. And then I think I marked it. I was like, okay. And I'm nope. thinking I have a, ni- I have a 19 year old, you guys. I was like, oh gosh. That's they, what just the pictures, you see how young these people were and what they accomplished and you know, it's just not what you expect out of a 19 year old. No, no. That's, and that's what he wrote too, right? Like, so yes, you're, you're, there's going to be heroes that die in the story. There's heroes that survive in the story, but there's never this sense of hopelessness. It's always this sense of showing you the capacity of, of humanity to be brave and courageous and to connect and to care. Um, you know, like there's a couple quotes that came to mind. Um, G.K. Chesterton said, the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. So you have to think like what was driving these men was not necessarily hate, at least on the side of the Americans, but a sense of camaraderie between the men that are there. Like, these are my men. My dad has that sense too. Like they mm-hmm. bond and also what they were fighting for. They were thinking about their freedoms back home and what this war meant. Again, it's like back to what Diane said. It was like, there's no goriness in it necessarily, but there's the impact and the ramifications of the war. I don't know. I felt a sense of pride too. 
yeah. in this generation, like you said, you're like the greatest generation. There's a reason they're called that. It just, it was just, it's phenomenal courage under unimaginable circumstances. Well, and I also loved the creative thinking. And I think we see this in a lot of war stories, but with, with this book, it real blessing game really focuses in on their ability to adapt to anything because they are mission focused. And I think about how, how rarely today we as a culture are mission focused. And so when you are mission focused and you are focused on something that isn't about you, it's about others and protecting their lives. It's amazing how creative you can become. And I marked this part from Guadalcanal. So we have a story of this, um, one of the medics, let me make sure. So Vernon Floyd was tasked with helping to get injured onto the airplane, which would then fly them to one of the other island hospitals. So they're trying to take off and the Japanese are destroying the runway in front of them. Three times they get their wounded onto that plane and then have to get them off because the Japanese are firing on their plane. Finally, they wait until dark. They've patched up the runway enough that they can take off, but it's a perfect storm. And there is an actual storm that causes their instruments to fail and they're lost. So now they're at a place where they are in the sky, out of fuel, lost, flying blind. And they need to crash land this plane without killing everybody. So they do. And the plane lands in the ocean and it stays just enough above water that they can, you know, float. And they now are trying to figure out how they're going to feed and care for these injured, some of whom have dysentery. So how do you do this with no water and no food? So in the rain, they they use oil tarps, which made me think of David Weitzman. But anyway, um, they use oil tarps and they catch all the water and they make a still and they distill the water so that it's safe to, to give to the patients. Now, they their mayday call never got through. So they're doing this for over a week. So finally, one of the seaplanes find them. And they um, are trying to load their wounded onto these seaplanes, the ones that can be both boats and planes. But they're too heavy. One of the planes fails. It's too heavy. They can't, they, they can't fit everybody on the plane. So they're waiting some more. And a destroyer finally comes and rescues them. This is like day 10. And it says, next day, a destroyer came over the horizon. Once more, Vernon Floyd had to oversee the transfer of his wounded men. But at long last, it was over. On board the destroyer, he could get treatment for his own cuts and broken ribs. By now, the infection in his legs were so bad that he would bear scars of it all his life. But the 16 sick and wounded men who had been under his care all through the ordeal, only slightly worse for wear. 16 men's lives he saved. 100%. And just the, the creative thinking to distill the water, to catch the water. It was just amazing what they were able to do under terrible circumstances because they just knew what their job was. And I can't remember who first uh, said this in my hearing, but one of the reasons that American soldiers have been so successful in war is because they are allowed the creativity mm -hmm. to step outside in order, possibly, mm -hmm. 
to think through what needs to be done rather than such strict discipline that you don't dare step out of line. But, you know, the commander said this, we can't do that. So the fact that they're allowed to think independently when it's called upon makes them more successful than some other soldiers who are more strictly disciplined. The American cowboy. Mm -hmm. Not that there's not discipline and that they're not amazing soldiers, but it's a completely different mindset. Yes. It really That's is. Like, that just takes me right into Desmond Doss's story. So I had never heard of him. I don't know where I've been living under a rock, I guess. So I had never heard of him. And it touches on his story here in the book. And then, oh, at the very end, I think it talks about that he was the first conscientious objector to win yeah. Congressional Medal of Honor. So I went and, you know, I went and looked him up. There was a documentary done in like 2000 or 2004. That's a three part that I watched. That's excellent. And I really recommend anyone watch that. We'll include Um, that in the show notes. Yeah. And then there was a movie that came out called Hacksaw Ridge that I also watched. And I'm going to be a hundred percent honest. Like it's brutal. It's so worth it, but it's so brutal. So I fast forwarded through a lot of the gory scenes that were the war scenes. Cause I, I I literally might've passed out or thrown up. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's just me. So that's kind of the warning, but his story is basically that he got into the army. They had agreed to take him, but he said he wouldn't hold a rifle, but he wanted to come on as a medic. And then there was all this pushback. And I just, you know, he was 23. I think we, my kids and I calculated it and I had, my oldest is 22. And I just looked at her and I said, would you have had the fortitude to not have buckled under this kind of pressure that you're seeing? I mean, he was just from top levels above him. They did everything they could, including threatening court-martialing him. And she's like, I don't think I could have withstood that. And he, I mean, he was just a unique man. He was seventh day Adventist. He felt really strongly and they ended up growing to really appreciate him and respect him because of what he did at Okinawa at the Mm -hmm. Hacksaw Ridge, also known as the Maeda Escarpment. And I had asked Jill because we watched it in the movie and in the movie, when you see him taking the men mm-hmm. down that ridge and then he goes and he, in, in the movie and he's talked about this, I can't remember if this is in the book, but he, he keeps praying, God, just let me get one more. Just let me get one more. And he keeps going back for another all alone under Japanese fire. Mm-hmm. And then you see him coming down the ridge. I, in my mind, as I read the book, I didn't understand the ridge. And then I saw the movie and then I went and looked for pictures and I said to Jill, did you put a picture of that in there? Because what I saw in my mind and what the reality was, was drastically different. And it just pulled on my heartstrings to Mm -hmm. see what that escarpment actually looked like. Mm -hmm. And in the book, what it said was that he, I mean, it was like 12 hours that he went and rescued men that were stranded up there that were wounded. And I think his commander said, I think you brought down a hundred men. And he said, no, it must've only been 50. And he said, well, we'll split the difference and call it 75. So in both the documentary and the movie, and I think with his medal, he was basically said, you know, you saved 75 men. We don't actually know. It could have been much higher than that and probably likely was, but it was point blank miraculous. Right. It, I I'm just, I'm speechless over it. The way the story was told in the book, like just mm-hmm. pulled on my heart to go research him. And then I did. And then I watched both of those films and, um, you know, the men in the documentary, they, the, the guy doing the documentary took them back there, mm-hmm. Doss and like three or four other men that were in his unit, 
they went yeah. back and like one of them said, I can hardly handle being here because yeah. he's like, you can't imagine. At first they thought they wouldn't remember. And then they said, and he's like, no, they didn't have any problem remembering. Like it was all too vivid. Mm-hmm. And then they just talked about kind of the miracles. And during that 12 hours, Desmond was not wounded. I just, I, I just kind of felt like there was a way to see God's hand in it too. Absolutely. It, just, it was just yeah. too miraculous and his faith. And then there was where they get orders to move again. And he says, it's a Saturday. And he said, I wouldn't work on Saturdays because that's his Sabbath. Right. And they come to him and he agrees to it as long as he can do his prayer, his morning prayers first. Mm-hmm. And so the entire unit waits for him to pray. And the men are like, we're not going without him. Because <laughs> they respected him that much. He helped them that much. And um, yeah. But, but and, I, and I think they also believed in his faith. I think they believed when he believed. Mm-hmm. Well, they said, you know, especially in the first half of the book, Blessing Game talks a number of times about how these medics went out with no guns, no protective gear at all. They were going out essentially naked into the line of fire in order to save lives. And it was their faith in humanity and their faith in what their job was that was their armor. And I think that when you can amplify that, with with when well, you can amplify that with religious faith, you can see that real miracles happen. And and you see with these with these medics of all stripes, their willingness, their undauntedness, their undaunted courage to go out into the line of fire knowing that there were targets on them, that snipers were gunning for them. I think it was something truly extraordinary that was fueling them and protecting them. Mm-hmm. nobody can say history is dry and boring if you're reading landmarks you just have to have the right author amen <laughs> and i think that's the brilliance of it i think blast and game was the perfect, perfect author for these books i think he was he in was the military there. right he so was hard. there he cared he about un- it intuitively understood these people because he was one of them so he could write within in a perspective that maybe a journalist would not have had or something like that. Yeah. Although journalists yeah. are great too. So I'm not, not knocking. Right. Some of the pictures I looked through, um, one of them was a medic with a paintbrush in his hand and he was painting over the red cross on his ambulance because he didn't want to get bombed. Right. And they also took the, the red cross armbands off of their arms in some places. And cut them out, they said. They had to mm-hmm. cut them off in certain places. Yeah. So Jill, the story itself is just absolutely compelling. But the photography is truly remarkable. And for other, not all landmark books are like this. Many of them don't have vast amounts of illustration or photography. But this one is very, very photo heavy. Mm-hmm. So that's presented quite a problem for you when it came to reprinting this book what what was that like um it was a big issue and and another reason why this was going to be such a huge task to tackle there are 48 photographs in this book about half of them were copyright protected so the way it works with these photographs is 
the photographs taken by the military that they released that are not classified, those are always in the public domain. And then ones that the news services took like worldwide and UPI, um, those were copyright protected. And an example of one of those was the raising of the flag on Iwo Jima. Mm-hmm. Um, but that ended up winning a Pulitzer Prize and the photographer put it in the public domain. And it's been in the public domain for a long time. So wow. I was able to use that one. But what I ended up doing is I sifted through thousands and thousands of photographs to find ones that were taken by the military. And I replaced all of the ones that were copyright protected with Army Signal Corps, or a lot of them came from the Navy. And, and I used those types of photographs in place of them. I found like similar photographs that I was able to use. And I was much happier with how it turned out. Actually, I think that we have more access now to photos uh, to choose from than the author did in the 1960s or 70s when this was written. Wow. The pictures are very compelling. They tell their own story and you've done a brilliant job with captions because so how many of the pictures in the book are the same? Are there any that are the same or are they all replaced? I would say like at least half of them are the same, maybe more. And uh, the rest I went in and found something similar and replaced it. Or if I couldn't find something similar, I picked something else out of that particular story that he was telling And I added that, like the one that you told about Vernon Floyd, I couldn't find an earlier picture in the book for a different story. So I picked out a picture of a PDY Catalina, the flying boats, and I put a picture of the flying boat landing because I just thought that was so interesting how they called them flying boats and they would come down and rescue people that way. I really think the pictures help to make the story. I mean, I think the story would be marvelous just to listen to, but the pictures... Like, like you said, Tanya, about Hacksaw Ridge, it's mm-hmm. an, it's a completely compelling story. And then you see the picture and your jaw hits the floor. Like, yeah. Oh, and so that's I asked, what that was. Yeah. I had asked Jill about that because I knew she was replacing pictures because in the original book, there is a photo of Desmond with his Congressional Medal of Honor. I think that's the only picture of him. So then what did you do, Jill? Oh, I found that picture and that's in there. But then after it, I, uh, somebody suggested to me that I should put the Hacksaw Ridge in there, which was, I suggested that. (laughs) And I I thought, oh, I know there's a picture of him out there standing on it, but I don't know if it's public domain. And so I searched and sure enough, it was, it was taken um, by the military. So I was able to use it and I put it in there at the very end of his story. So people can see and understand because I, until you said that, I didn't fully understand what it looked like Mm -hmm. that he had climbed up and up and down and so many times saving people. And we'll include a picture of that in the show notes, because if you do nothing else, friends, you need to go look that up. If you've not seen Hacksaw Ridge, you need to go look, because when you understand that a man is carrying another man over that ridge. I, I don't even know how he did that. Yeah. And in the documentary, which would be appropriate, it doesn't have anything graphic that your kids that were reading it couldn't watch. That picture is used in the documentary as well. So I, mm-hmm. I love the tie-in. So if you watch the okay. documentary, then yeah. you have that picture in the book as well. Well, you know what it is? That was taken on May 4th. 
and the Hacksaw Ridge thing took place on May 5th. So that was the day before. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's, that's how close in time it was. Wow. So it's pretty accurate. <laughs> uh, you know, speaking of documentaries, there is on YouTube a, um, there's a commemorative, I forget what the actual year was, but we'll include it in the show notes. A, the commemoration of D-Day, I think it was the 40th anniversary or something. They, there were a team of volunteers who did huge life-size stencils of men and they took the beach and they covered mm. the beach with all the stencils. And then you see with the drone above what the beach would have looked like littered with bodies. And I used this book as an opportunity to begin that conversation with my children and show them that video. And that's of course, completely, it's not, you don't have to be worried. There's, there's nothing um, concerning in the video. I did also decide that this was the moment to show my children the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan, the landing on the beaches of Normandy scene. And that is horribly graphic. So I did not make my children watch it if they wanted to look away. And my little guy walked away a couple of times. But if you're looking for an opportunity to bring teenagers into that conversation, this book might be a, a good opportunity to do that. It's a good angle in. And I just want to say, didn't you guys think that this book, a lot of um, the landmarks are kind of the sweet spot. You could do eight to 12, yeah. eight to 13, older. but I really think this particular book, you can go older on. I think you could definitely still do a third. Oh yeah. Second, third, fourth grader easy. Because again, what Diane had said earlier, not it's, graphic. Not, it's not graphic. It's real. It's honest. It's mm -hmm. not graphic, but I also feel like it's really accessible for teenagers. I, I thought it was really accessible as an adult read. Honestly, I agree. Yeah. It's not limited just to children. No, that's no. what I was going to say. And it's partly because it's from an angle that you don't usually hear, even mm -hmm. if you are well-versed in World War II history. And um, I would say the writing is in a sweet spot. It's intelligible to young minds, but interesting to more mature minds. So the writing, it's almost like a journalist level of writing in that anybody reading the newspaper needs to be able to understand it and still appreciate it. And I think he hits just the right note. Mm -hmm. And yeah. again, it's the, the way it's organized, it could be very easily done is a read aloud at dinner or morning basket, um, because you could just do a chapter, which is a collection of vignettes for that particular battle. And each chapter is a different moment in the war or a different location. And so you get a different set of stories. So there's a continuity for sure, but it's easily divisible so that you could take it in bite-sized chunks. I love that you pointed out that it could be read aloud because there are a lot of books that do not read aloud well. Mm -hmm. They are clunky. To, like, they're great to just read, but they don't make a great read aloud. And as I shared earlier, I read this a uh, few chapters aloud to my dad and it does flow. It is not a clunky, hard read aloud mm -hmm. at all. It flows really well. I mean, and we both were emotional. And then he's like, well, good luck finishing that up. I think that's funny <laughs> for me. <laughs> he's like, I don't know how you can read that. Like his, his heart just was starting to swell. And I, I just wanted to share this as well. I kept, I kept trying to articulate this sense of hope, but it was more just inspiring. And there's this quote, and I don't know how to say the person's name who 
said this quote, but this is what I kept thinking of, especially by the time I got to the end of it. And this is maybe how my dad felt too. And I think we also have to consider that while many of these men survived and lived, you know, we know that many of them died during world war II, but the ones who did survive and live, there's very few, if any left at this point, right? Mm -hmm. We're just, we're down to the end of our world war II veterans. Mm -hmm. And the quote is the brave die never though they sleep in dust, their courage nerves a thousand living men. Mm. And I think that's what like, that's what Mm -hmm. my dad and I were walking away with. It was just, you're seeing it all, but what's shining through is the sense sense of heroism and courage and camaraderie. And it's inspiring. It just makes you think that's who I want to be. That's the kind of person I want to be. Like if you have young men reading it, like that's. Yeah that's what you want to have in their repertoire when they're going out into the world is stories. I got out of it too. You just, you don't want them to just be me, 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 me. You want them to see these pictures of people that sacrificed everything exactly for their country, for their unit. Just remarkable. We read so many world war II books these days. And so often the theme, the, the focus is on the horrible themes, you know, that I'm thinking about our Barn House book club and, and it, how important and beautiful and relevant a book that is. But this one is really different because it's so hopeful. It's such a celebration of life. It's, it's comes at this from a different, like we keep saying, it comes at it from a different angle. And so in your World War II diet, this is the little vitamin C that you, that you need. This is a, this is one that is going to really make you feel things, but also make you feel proud and whole and grateful. So this would be a great one to get to read, you know, in November or in May, you know, when we're, when we're remembering, um, when we're remembering our veterans and their sacrifices, I think this would be a really, really neat tie in to something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I really feel like the photographs add so much to the story because it shows you what he's describing. And to me, if it was just the words I was reading, I don't think I'd fully comprehend what those people went through. Agreed. They did for each other. And like you said, there's, there's nothing gory in there. I mean, there's people that are hurt, but they're getting help. Uh, it's just, I think the photographs are uplifting. Well, to me, they, they were completely uplifting. Jill, in Combat Nurses, there's the beautiful quote that Greta puts in her review about the fact that these women, the nurses, were such heroes. Mm-hmm. And so I love that in Medical Corps Heroes, you have so many pictures where there are nurses present too. And I love the line. I think this was in Guadalcanal where one of the guys is badly injured and he's been injured for like two days and the, the corpsmen get to him and they, he's, he turns and says, well, I've been waiting two days for a nurse, for the nurses. I guess you boys will do. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I just want to remind people that combat nurses is the continuation of the story, but I loved how in the photos you had all these pictures of the women. I loved also that you had pictures of a lot of different kinds of medical corps heroes. I loved the celebration of all the different ways in which there were people who were 
I love that there were Black Americans were included, women were included. I loved all the different things. Well, I didn't realize that there was a battalion called the Black Panthers, Mm. African Americans. I included a picture of their surgeon. Yes. And he before and he was 50 years old at the time he was the oldest member of their battalion he was a captain and before the war he was a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at a historically black college in tennessee he's an OBGYN. yeah and he's out there doing surgery surgery on all these men um, well, that was that was in the book i mean not him specifically but remember they said they would take doctors with specialties Mm-hmm. And yeah. then put them in various places, but they didn't really need an OBGYN on a Navy right. ship in the middle of the sea <laughs> yes. where there were no women and no babies. Exactly. But, <laughs> but then, there they were stuck. They were like, well, here you are. But then you've got them in, in France and there are children in need of a surgeon, but it's not, there are no pediatricians to be found. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> War is chaos. That's what it comes down to. (laughs) It is chaos. I also thought there was a point where they were talking about if you were a doctor and then you got put into the Marines, they would put you through basic training. Yes. I said that to my dad. He's like, they did not. They did not take 40 year olds and 50 year olds and put them through basic training. I have a picture of it. it. And those guys, those guys were joining the paratrooper elite forces and they had to learn how to jump out of planes. Planes. But yeah, and they were see, surgeons. And you see shape, why. 40 year olds, you guys who hadn't been working out like that. No, but you <laughs> well, see no why. Joke. They, they had to be able, 40, though. <laughs> they had to be able to, to carry the wounded. They had to be able to do all kinds of things that you would never do in a mm-hmm. surgical suite. They had to be in shape. <laughs> well, I told my dad that, cause I don't know that basic training is quite the same as it was back then. And he just looked at me. He's like, they didn't do that in the Marines. I'm like, they did. He's like basic training, Tanya. I'm like, I know, I know dad. <laughs> he was just like, wow. <laughs> but then they talked about how that saved lives, right? They're mm-hmm. that training. They literally needed that training because they were going to be running with the units. Mm-hmm. They were. That's, well, that's something I didn't know before in this book. I didn't realize that units and battalions had their own medics that traveled with them out onto the battlefield. I did not know that. It's, isn't that fascinating? But it makes, I mean, logistically, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. It does. It's just not something you think about. Because like, I mean, I grew up watching MASH, you know. And <laughs> right. I, I just feel like there were so many things that I learned that I had no idea about. And all of it was interesting. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think it was going to be. I didn't either. <laughs> right. I didn't either. <laughs> Diane, I didn't... were you thinking it was going to be interesting? Like, what were your expectations when you went into it? I guess I usually find a World War II story interesting, so I wasn't not expecting to be interested. Hmm. <laughs> I just was like military maneuvers. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> and Jack keeps telling me I need to read The Flying Tigers. He said, Mom, like 70% of the book is air battles. Yeah, well, um, yeah, maybe, I maybe so. I don't need to prioritize that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I thought that when I read the story of the Mexican war by Colonel Reader, I thought, oh, this is probably going to be really dry. It was so fascinating. I learned so much. It And then it laid the groundwork for the wars that came after. And I had so much better understanding. Yes. 
but it, and it, but it wasn't dry and it wasn't boring, but it does, it does. It is like movement and movement and movement. Like what, and then maps. Oh my gosh. So many maps. <laughs> I did appreciate the map that was in this book too, of the Pacific theater. So you could have an idea of like yeah. where all of those islands were and where Guadalcanal was and <laughs> international dateline. And <laughs> mm-hmm. So I helpful. think there's, I think there are two really important takeaways from this. One is that humans are always interesting. Humanity is interesting. And two, we've grown up with a generation of textbooks and education that makes us think it's not interesting. And the beauty of the landmark books is that they were designed to celebrate those seminal moments, those seminal people or events that were landmark, that that matter for, as David Weitzman would say, were the edges. This is when human history changed because of this thing, whatever this thing is. And so these books matter because they are about how humanity has is no longer the way that it was because of what happens in this book. How is that not interesting? Yeah. Now, there are some books that maybe just aren't always interesting to everybody. But as a whole, I think that the the landmark books as a whole stand to say humans are living incredible stories and we get to participate in that when we read these books and they chose the authors that were passionate about what they were writing and that shines through in the story and that makes all the difference in the world and because it's a series you can you can challenge yourself to grow by sitting down with an author who's passionate about their subject matter and see if maybe you couldn't find a way to be interested in that subject matter. I found the photographs in Medical Core Heroes so helpful. I just felt more in touch with the stories he was telling, actually seeing similar things to what were going on in the book, as opposed to line drawings that I am in the process of redoing combat nurses. So there's gonna be two versions of the book, depending on which way people wanna see it. There's the version that is very similar to the original one with the same cover and um, line drawings. I'm also doing a a new version now that is gonna be illustrated with photographs similar to Medical Heroes. And it's gonna have the same sort of cover. It's gonna match Medical Heroes and uh, I, I'm I'm really enjoying it because I didn't think I would, but I actually like going through all these photos, uh, these thousands and thousands of photos. I'm skipping over the gory ones, but like I said, these are really uplifting photos and I want them to be in combat nurses too. I think that's really fantastic and exciting. And so both versions of combat nurses will be available for purchase. Mm-hmm. Well, Jill, I... I would like to thank you sincerely for making me care about combat nurses and medical heroes of World War II. I think uh, this was an un, this was something I'd always sort of heard about, but didn't really know about. And these books are really magical. So I, I think we that. need to thank Wyatt, honestly. I, all, I, I did was, all I do is revive his work. And he, he's the one who gets the credit. I am so grateful for him and his family that they made it easy for you to do this. Not that the project was easy. (laughs) (laughs) It was well worth it. I spent weeks looking through those photographs, but I I really uh, 
and I wasn't looking forward to it. I thought it would be tedious, but it was anything but tedious. Mm. It was very interesting. See, publishing is teaching you a lot about yourself, isn't it? <laughs> you turns out you really good nature. I'm doing things I never expected to do. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Well, Tanya and Jill, this was as always marvelous and totally enjoyable. We're going to have you back, I'm sure, many more times. This is just great. Thank you for coming today and helping us unpack this book and help other people discover how wonderful it is. Thank you, Pat. I feel like clapping. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. All right. All right, ladies. Thank you, ladies. Thank you so much. Bye.